TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about people or organizations having a big impact here in North Texas. I'm your host, Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Today we'll visit with the president and CEO of the Dallas Regional Chamber, Dale Petrosky. But first, we continue our Odyssey series, I'm Listening with a conversation led by our colleague David O'Leary with guests discussing veterans' mental health. David? This is Odyssey's I'm Listening, our commitment to inspire more conversations about mental health. I'm David O'Leary. It's great to have you with us. November, we honor our veterans, and we also acknowledge the elevated risk for mental health issues and suicide among our veteran population. Brigadier General Jack Hammond joins us to speak on behalf of the Home Base Program, a national nonprofit dedicated to healing the invisible wounds of war for veterans of all eras. General Hammond, great to speak with you. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, no, thank you, David. Appreciate your time today. Hey, how we talk about suicide and, and mental health, that has changed a little bit in, in recent years. There's still a ways to go, but we're, we're more fluent in the conversation to talk about these things, to be able to identify problems. Is, do you see that in, uh, in your line of work in, in, in terms of our veterans? I think we see it not only with the our veterans, and it's funny because a lot of times the military leads medicine in certain directions based out of necessity and innovation, et cetera, uh, and, and it's happened throughout our history. And when you when you think of things like penicillin, X-rays, and all these things that came about as a result of World War One and and so forth, mm-hmm. but unfortunately for these wars, these most recent wars, uh, the mental health and brain injury aspect has been brought to the forefront for uh, some pretty rough reasons. I mean, we've lost 150,000 veterans to suicide since 9-11. We've had a half a million veterans with traumatic brain injuries, which we know oftentimes will then lead to suicidal ideations based upon some of the issues they're they're feeling. And so Mm -hmm. the, the Army and the DOD have taken this quite seriously because, you know, when you start, when you lose 20 to 30 to 40 people a day to suicide, on a national basis, that, that's a red flag. Yeah, that will turn some heads. And these risk factors, I guess, were always out there for our veterans coming back from service and, you know, in, in combat. It's just now that we're more aware of them and, and maybe now acknowledging them a little bit more freely and openly in the last, you know, couple of years? I think so. I, I mean, you know, people have been traumatized since, you know, people fighting with axes and shields, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty horrific stuff. And people have been getting blown up since People invent a gun bother. And I think the, the reality is um, on the suicide part of it, it was such a taboo in so many religions, first of all, that even if it happened, 
people kept it hushed up. Kept the lid on it, sure. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of well-intentioned police officers and firemen that responded to scenes where somebody may have taken their life, rather than put the family through the challenges of dealing with that, and, you know, you look at insurance and other reasons, you know, they, they, they'll, they'll come up with another euphemism for it. Yeah. Some, you know, died suddenly. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Sure. And, and so I think it's I, I think we've, we've kind of normalized the injury a bit, certainly within the military. And I think that's helped with the general population, because when you when you have these conversations about suicide very publicly and the debates about the care and the need for care, you start realizing, number one, you need to do something about it. But I think the underlying issue that we're dealing with is mental health care is the worst reimbursed area of medicine. Ah. And so we've got the least alternatives to deal with something, arguably, that's a life-threatening injury, right? I mean, if all these people are taking their lives without adequate care, that's a life-threatening situation. The access to care piece, even finding clinicians and caregivers, even if you have insurance, even if you have resources, can be a real challenge. And I think that's something people have become aware of in the last couple of years as we're, we're all much more keenly aware of our mental health and anxiety and you know, all these other things. And trying to get care is a real struggle sometimes. It's, it's a huge struggle. And, and the other part is, you know, as you pointed out, it's not covered. So there's a barrier to care. I mean, if you've if you've got $500 an hour, you'll probably be able to find the right person. But the reality is most of them are generalists, mm-hmm. uh, and that's by design. And it's one of the few areas of medicine, right, that that's allowed to take place. It's almost like, you know, back in the 1930s where all you really had to go see was your general practitioner, and they pretty much right. did everything. Um, right. But that's where it is with mental health. Yeah. And so if you're a licensed social worker, psychologist, or psychiatrist, you have met the requirements to treat literally anything, even though you mm-hmm. don't have the proper tools. And, and this is no disparaging comments towards them. They're doing the best they can, and thank God we have them. Right. It's just you wouldn't go see a pediatrician if you had stage 3 colon cancer. Right. And the, and the complicated nature of the trauma that so many people are, are facing, whether in the military or out, you need someone that's trained and certified just as you would be in – cancer care or cardiac care, you deserve to be cared for somebody that's equipped to deal with the complexities of the issues you have. And and frankly, we just don't see it. And the the end result is an absence of the appropriate care leading to an increase in suicide. Boy, that's really well put. I mean, for all the talk that we have about normalizing this conversation around mental health and talking about uh, mental health the way we talk about our physical health, it's all well and good, but the treatment of mental health is very different than the treatment of of physical health. And if we don't have the caregivers, we're kind of back where we started. And if you look on the heels of that, right, one of the byproducts of mental health challenges is substance use. Yeah, there's a lot of shared real estate. And we see that, and probably 60% of the folks that we care for have some level of some sub, you know, whether it's, you know, it, it's you, a lot more often than not, it's self-indulgence and, and, you know, self-medicating with alcohol or sometimes prescription drugs or, or, or worse when it gets into the illegal drugs. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes those lead to those self-harm suicides. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the elevated risk among our, our veterans, because there is more to it than just 
you know, being, uh, you know, close to munitions and, and, and things like that in the service itself in general and the, and sometimes the culture. I think you and I have spoken before about the, the culture that can tend to lead to that get back out there and, and do your job and we're not going to talk about this. I know that's changing, but can you talk a little bit about why those who serve may be at, uh, at elevated risk? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a few reasons. Number one, you know, elevated exposures, right? You've got folks, we deal very closely with our special operations forces. And right now, you know, if you look at a, a Green Beret, a Navy SEAL, a, a member of Delta Force that, you know, is at the 20, 25-year mark, they've got 20 years of combat. They've got 15 to 20 combat deployments, and, and they've experienced some pretty traumatic issues. Beyond that, I think more to the point you were making, it's also, you know, we're, we're self-starters, we're self-reliant, and, and we play hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, and so traditionally, you know, you, you kind of, there's a mentality we call, you know, you got to suck it up. So there's a difference between being hurt and injured. If you're hurt, you have to suck it up. If you're injured, you require medical attention. Mm-hmm. And too often, people confuse the two when it comes to mental health. Ah. You know what I mean? Because... If you fracture your ankle and there's a bone sticking through, there's no discussion. You're, you're injured. You need to be medevac. You're off right? the field, yeah. But if you pull a muscle, you're hurt, and they expect you to keep moving, right? right? Where there's no physical injury that's visible, people assume a mental health issue, you're just a little bit hurt, and, and you're not injured. Right. And so that goes on for a little bit, and, and when it doesn't get better, it, it does get worse. And the longer you deal with it without treating it or, or responding to it, the more problems you have. And so I think that's kind of at the center of it, because even if all the best leaders in the world want to do the right thing by the service members, yeah. we're sometimes our own worst enemy because we don't want to admit failure. We don't want to admit that we can't solve a problem that we're facing because, you know, by definition, especially when we get into our special operators, they get sent into no-fail situations routinely. And that's kind of our mantra, right? Never accept defeat. Failure is not an option. So on a personal side, when you're not able to cope with something, you're not able to overcome it, it feels like a failure, and nobody wants to admit defeat on that. You know, Back to, uh, to CARE just a minute. One of the things that home base provides is at, at a thing called the Training Institute is you work with caregivers and healthcare professionals on a lot of different areas in terms of treating those who have served, how to talk about military culture and training on PTSD and, and all of the things that, that we're talking about. So it seems as if home base is working to try to create more care or more options for care for those who struggle. Yeah, we approach that two different ways. And so you've touched on it. So some of them are very intensive training programs that are certification, uh, providing clinical capability and capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that's obviously a very extensive process. And, and we've been working with clinicians in Massachusetts, in Florida. We're starting to work in Arizona to help build clinical capability where there's an absence of that. And that, that can take six months. But what we've also done is a lot of individual trainings to help with military culture, to help with pieces of the training and the clinical experience, help raise the level a bit. And we've provided training to more than 85,000 clinical providers wow. in, in a various different uh, range of activities and, and, and therapies just to give them a little bit of help. And, and you know, it, basically, you're familiar with the CEUs and the, and the you know, the um, course credits and medical whatnot. training that you've got to do each year. Mm-hmm. This goes towards that, and we don't charge. So it's kind of an enticement to 
come work on our stuff so they're better prepared to treat veterans. Because otherwise, you've got to go pay to get your CEUs. We offer them at no cost, and, and we, we offer them in areas that we think there's a gap and, and needs attention. Yeah. We should note uh, the, the care that Homebase provides for veterans of all eras and service members and families, which is so important, and families of the fallen, regardless of era of service or status or geographical location, it's all provided free of charge, which is no, uh, no small thing. That's really, really something amazing. Can, can you talk about serving families and working with families and their part to play when someone is struggling and, and how they're impacted when someone's struggling? touched on it right at the get-go. So families are a central theme to all the care we provide, whether they are seeking care themselves or the veteran is seeking care, because we know it's kind of an ecosystem. If you, if you only address part of the family, the injury has cascaded throughout the entire family. Hmm. Many of our veterans feel like they're suffering in silence, but their family knows they're not doing well and their behaviors are impacting everybody. And the longer this goes on, the longer the impact takes place. So we have very specialized programs for military-connected children. We've got programs for spouses, uh, parents, family members, couples. So we approach it from a range of areas. Then when we look, one of the things we looked at a few years ago was on our national programs, and this this goes to the point that you mentioned, all of our programs are, are absolutely free to the veterans and military family members that need them. We have a two-week intensive clinical program that we've now operated for seven years that flies 24 veterans in from across the country and, and anywhere in the world at no cost. So there's absolutely zero cost to it. It's the best clinical program in the country, bar none, and it's free. Mm. And so if you're a U.S. veteran and you feel like you've got PTSD, you need to call us and our folks will sort that with you. And we'll get you in the queue, but we, will, we, we assume all the costs for airfare, lodging, meals, and all the treatment. About five years ago, a national organization called Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, which is an umbrella group for families of our fallen, they have a subset of families that are surviving members of suicide, not just losing their service member, they lost them to suicide. Mm -hmm. We created a very specialized program initially for the military spouses, primarily military wives, all too often either witnessed the suicide or walked in and found the remains. Mm. By far some of the most injured people we we treat at home base Mm -hmm. And we designed a 14-day intensive clinical program for it where we compressed nearly two years of therapy into the 14-day period with dramatic results. Um, wow. And we've now been running that for about five years with great, great success. Um, I want to, in, in the short time we have left, point people to how to get care. If you're listening, of course, and you're struggling at this moment, call 988. But if you'd like to find out more about these programs or how to support them or how to avail yourself or someone you love of them, homebase.org, is that the, the, the best place to, to start? That, that is the best way, homebase.org. You'll see a button in there. One of the first things you'll see is connect to care. And so if you have any doubt, if you, if you, and, and, you, know, you can obviously peruse the website and see the various programs we have. And they, they really do range from very light programs that get people just reconnected to other veterans and military family members mm-hmm. to uh, resiliency-based programs that are now, with the advent of Zoom, um, we can now we now run these nationally, and they focus on stress reduction, anxiety reduction. With military connected children, it also gets into self esteem building, uh, and then you get into the actual clinical care programs. And we have partnerships in across Massachusetts and Southwest Florida. We're soon to have some outpatient clinical care in Arizona, but the big ones are the national programs where we fly you to Boston, 
and, and essentially you, you, you press the connect to care button and somebody will reach out with you in a few days and connect with you and talk you through the process. Mm. You are not alone. That's the thing to, to, to know here. That's the key. Yeah, homebase.org to find out just a little bit more. General Brigadier General Jack Hammer retired as U.S. Army Brigadier General, multiple combat commands, and has uh, dedicated his life's work to, uh, to saving lives and the good work of home base. It's great to talk to you, Jack. Thanks for all you do. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, David. Appreciate all the work you're doing as well. If you or someone you know is struggling with depression or anxiety, there is always someone there. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 988. I'm David O'Leary, and this is Odyssey's I'm Listening. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening, our commitment to inspire more conversations about mental health. I'm David O'Leary. Thank you for joining us. This month, as we acknowledge Veterans Day, we recognize the elevated risk for suicide among our veteran population. The Wounded Warrior Project has for many years been working to turn the tide of veteran suicide and create mental health for our veterans. Began in 2003 as a a sort of a a grassroots effort for veterans who were returning from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. The organization has grown in 20 years, and we're really, really thrilled to welcome a couple of members to speak on behalf of it. Uh, Dr. Aaron Fletcher, who has a wealth of experience in veteran mental health care at the Wounded Warrior Project. She serves as Director of Warrior Care and the Warrior Care Network. And Tanya Oxendine, who is uh, our U.S. Army veteran, thank you for your service, reached the rank of command sergeant major and struggled after her service, as many do. That is not an unusual or a a new story. She credits the care and support she received from the Wounded Warrior Project programs as part of her recovery. Welcome to you both. It's great to to have you here on I'm Listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. The, uh, The Wounded Warrior Project has for 20 years been working to serve those who served our country. How have things changed in that time? I guess I'd love to begin by how we talk about mental health and how we talk about suicide. Certainly in the last few years, that's changed, but over 20 years, it's, it's come a long way. Tanya, can I ask you to begin? Yeah, I think we've changed tremendously. It was more of a stigma and a taboo not to talk about mental health. It, you know, you, words that surrounding mental health were very, maybe not very nice words like you're crazy or, you know, those type of things. And it has nothing to do with that. And I just think with Wonder Warrior Project, we have, you know, brought that to the forefront that it's okay to talk about it, that it's okay to share it with your family, to share it with those who love you, to seek help is just so very important to prevent and, uh, you know, suicide and just struggling with mental health. Like I did for so many years, just suppressing all of that. It wasn't that I didn't know. It's just, I just didn't feel comfortable saying it. I felt embarrassed. I felt shameful. I felt guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, we're, we're talking about this and what you're doing, David, to bring this to the forefront is just going to change lives and it's going to save lives. Yeah. Would you say the same on the on the care side of things, Erin? I would. I think that we absolutely have made a significant amount of progress in elevating the conversation about the mental health challenges that our you know active duty and our veteran service members face. I know that there's been significant changes and gains in the evidence based treatment that we know works. So to Tanya's point, like when you're when that individual is ready and they say, "I need help." 
We have resources and we have treatment that works, which I think is an incredibly hopeful statement. So we know that access to care has improved. Still think there's some some room for improvement there. And I think there's also room for improvement in continuing to elevate this conversation, Mm. to speak very candidly about it. I think aspirationally, I'd love to see mental health challenges be talked about in the same way that high blood pressure or diabetes are talked about, particularly as it relates to the preventative measures that you can take with other physical conditions. I think a lot can be said the same for mental health challenges as well. Hmm. I wonder if we could back up just a little bit and talk about the veteran population and it's self-evident, but I'm going to ask anyway, why is, what are some of the reasons and contributing factors for that elevated risk for suicide among our veteran population? Tanya, I'm going to grab that one. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, So I think veterans, when we think about individuals who are placed in continuously stressful situations, and that isn't just combat, that's training, that's deployments, being away from family and, you know, not being able to address those instances right when they happen, you know, especially if you're out at training or you're on a deployment and you witness something traumatic or you're noticing that your mood is lower and you're feeling more depressed and anxious, there's not an opportunity to talk about that in the moment. This is mission first. We need to stay safe Hmm. and we need to be able to come home. And so we think about, again, that kind of longstanding, continuous exposure to stress, anxiety, isolation from friends and family. We also know that some individuals that join the military are coming in with already kind of pre-existing mental health challenges that I think oftentimes get exacerbated by the conditions I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I like to, uh, if you don't mind, because Aaron is correct, you know, military services is difficult, it's demanding, it's dangerous. You know, we have faced with challenges and we have sacrifices that we have to meet and, and things that we do. And over 200,000 service members transition from military each year. And what may be smooth for one may be a roller coaster for another. So, and I think, well, I know a lot of times we find it difficult to reach out and ask for help, like as Aaron mentioned, because it is mission first to make sure our soldiers are safe, make sure our families are safe and doing all these things. So that's what we do. That's what we know that the military is to fight and win wars. And that's the mindset that we have. And I think Mm -hmm. when we transition, we're still in that mindset and not realizing that these things need to be talked about, that we need to develop new skills and discover new ways of learning and new ways of healing and to realize that there is help out there and we don't have to keep that bottled in and struggle alone that, you know, wounded warrior project is there. We have uh, several services and programs and they continue to change based on the needs of, of the warrior as well. I, you know, I'm so glad you said that and, and spoke about that so eloquently, Tanya. I, you know, someone who hasn't served, I, I think everything I know about the military, I either saw on TV in the movies mm-hmm. or, you know, have talked to loved ones who, who have served. I don't know. I really have no idea. I can't fathom that. And I do get the sense that there is a sort of a culture of if you know, you know. If you have served, you know. And I sometimes, you know, wonder if that can contribute to the, this idea of just get out there and do your job and we'll talk about it later mentality that mm-hmm. maybe causes those who are struggling to, to, to suffer. 
Yeah, it is. I've said that very elegantly, but I think you know. Right. No, you're you're exactly right. You know, uh, I was uh, I served in the 82nd Airborne Division, rapid deployment, deploying unit, rapid rapid deployment organization. You had to be ready at all times. We know that coming in the military, I swore to defend and protect this country, to protect this nation and our citizens. And that's where my head was. That's what I meant to do. And that's what I was going to do by any means necessary. Hmm. But then, you know, and and as being a senior leader, you're just so involved in taking care of your soldiers, your soldiers, your soldiers, your soldiers, you kind of forget about yourself. Mm -hmm. And then when you transition, you're like, okay, there are no more soldiers. There's no more teams, so to speak. What am I supposed to do with myself? And then all this stuff, like for me, after returning from Afghanistan in 2012, I mean, it just came down. Like now I'm getting like, just my, my head is swelling up. It just came down like this huge rush, just everything all at once everything all at once. And I'll never forget, I was at the Pentagon uh, and I was looking out the window. I was stationed at the Pentagon after coming back from deployment, looking out the window. And I told my colleagues that I was going to go and take a drive. And um, and I was going to drive my car for bridge. Hmm. And I knew I would die because I, I don't know how to swim. Hmm. I had those suicidal thoughts. And thank goodness for my mental fortitude. I turned around. I ended up at Fort Belvoir a hospital there at the mental health counter and said I needed help and was recommended to Wounded Warrior Project. And I am so, 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 so grateful, so thankful that I am thriving now and did not leave a legacy of suicide for mm. my sons because that's where I was headed. Yeah, well, we're grateful too. Yeah. Aaron, to your point about mental health and, and talking about it and dealing with it the same way we talk about and deal with our, our physical health, can you talk about some of the some of the programs that are available and some of the ways that the Wounded Warrior Project works with veterans to do just that? Yeah, absolutely. So Wounded Warrior Project is really designed to support the whole person and their family. And so we have programs designed to address one's physical health and wellness, one's mental health and wellness their financial health and wellness, and then their, how we would phrase it, their social wellness, their community. Mm -hmm. And so we also know that individuals can come to Wounded Warrior Project through those different doors. You know, as Tani said, even though you know you're struggling um, with some mental health challenges, that might not be, the, the mental health door might not be the door that you walk into first. Right. And that's fine. We're just happy you're walking through the door. And then these programs are designed to kind of all work together, again, to provide this comprehensive and individualized approach to getting our veterans and their families what they need. Mm -hmm. So I think specifically about our mental health programs, we've structured it in a, a continuum of sorts, where we have kind of the lowest end of intensity, as it were, with our Wounded Warrior Project Talk program. That provides, that's a weekly phone call that the veteran has with the same kind of talk specialist every week for 20 minutes. They're working on accountability and a goal. Um, this is a great foray for individuals that are not ready for um, structured outpatient therapy yet. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to get some perspective, you know, again, that accountability piece. Then we have relationships with mental health providers in the community where we can connect veterans and or their family members to traditional clinical outpatient therapy. We have the Warrior Care Network program that I am so fortunate to oversee. And that is our exceptional two-week accelerated program for depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, military sexual trauma, using world-class treatment, partnering with one of our four 
partners across the country delivering this care. And then we have kind of our complex care team that uses resources within the VA um, and really provides that advocacy for more intensive levels of care. And it should be noted that none of these programs and services come at any cost to the warrior or their family. Mm. This is no cost to them. We bring them in, we guide them through, and we match them with what's going to meet their needs in that moment. Where do the veterans that you serve live? Where, where, where is your community of, of care? Is it nationwide? Certain nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are, you know, it's a national coverage. We have our kind of connection events and our physical health and wellness events have kind of a local component to it mm-hmm. for the face-to-face events so that you can really build that sense of community. We have virtual programming that brings kind of everybody together. Sure. Warrior Care Network specifically, national with four of our partners, and we fly you in for the program that's going to best suit your needs. Mm, nice. Tanya, talk about in the few minutes we have left, you know, how important is it as someone who's owned your own struggles mm-hmm. and we're so glad you're well and and so grateful for your willingness to talk about it because when we talk about it we normalize this kind of conversation. Right. Talk about how important it is to know that there are others who understand what you're going through, that you're not alone in this fight. Yeah, I would just tell all my fellow veterans that they are not alone in this fight. You know, before Wounded Warrior Project, as we mentioned, I was struggling. I mean, deep, just struggling. Uh, And and it was for nine years, nine whole years, I I struggled with my mental health. And now I tell you, I live a wonderful life. I do. And it's because Wounded Warrior Project has helped me helped me on that journey to better mental health and uh, has shifted my outlook on life. Mm. You know, there is no way that I could fail. Not with so many people trying to put me back together. You know, I'm fully operational now uh, and I'm on this amazing path and I get to, you know, go out and be a spokesperson for Wounded Warrior Project. And I travel the world advocating for mental health, physical health, military sexual trauma, you know, bringing awareness to what we do for our warriors. Uh, We are here to help. We will help and we can help. Well, I I wish you nothing but continued success in what you're doing and continued good health. I think you got that triathlon in you as we talked a little bit before we we got started, but you're you're a real force of nature. Tanya Oxendine, who served in the U.S. uh, Army for 30 years, uh, reaching the rank of Command Sergeant Major, and also Aaron Fletcher, who serves as a Director of Warrior Care Network for the uh, the Wounded Warrior Project. I'd like to tell you how everyone can get in contact with us. Meant to ask. Please do. Yes, yes. At WoundedWarriorProject.org. That's great. WoundedWarriorProject.org. I'm on it right now. And whether you're looking and finding out more about mental wellness, physical wellness, just getting connected with others, all of it right there at uh, WoundedWarriorProject.org to find out just a little bit more. Thanks for all you do. And thanks for being with us on Odysseys on Listening. Thank you, David. Thank you for having us. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening, and if you're struggling, remember you can always dial 988, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And the number again is 988. It's okay to not be okay. We know the power of talk can save lives. Odyssey's I'm Listening aims to share valuable resources for those who need to connect, heal, and share their own stories. You can find out more about the Wounded Warrior Project at WoundedWarriorProject.org. And you can find out more about Odyssey's I'm Listening initiative at I'mListening.org or by using the Odyssey app. I'm David O'Leary. This is I'm Listening from Odyssey. 
TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy. The tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. And joining us now is the president and CEO of the Dallas Regional Chamber, my new good friend Dale Petrosky. How you doing, Dale? I'm doing great, Chris. Always great to to hear your great voice and to be with you. I appreciate you joining us because it's close to the end of the year and everybody's always excited about, well, what's going on in Dallas? And you guys are always on top of these things, especially about all the different organizations and companies, corporations that are moving into the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Can you give us a quick synopsis of what the Dallas Regional Chamber does? I'm well aware of it. We've had different representatives on before, but, you know, you guys do so many Great things, and the goodwill is so exceptional. Could you could you explain it a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, I'll do it. Really, I'll do it really briefly for you to try to paint a picture. Um, there are, believe it or not, Chris, 175 chambers in Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, there are a lot of little chambers all over the place, but we're the big chamber. Mm-hmm. We're, we're we're number one. We're the largest, and we're three times bigger than number two, and then everybody else is below number two. So we're we're the big chamber. We're a regional chamber. What that means is when we go out to California or New York or Illinois and we talk to companies that want out of those places and they're looking, they want to look at Dallas, then we bring them to town and then we don't care where they land. We want the best fit for them. We, we're like Luca passing off, you know, to the, the player that can score the easiest. Right. Derek Lively or, or even uh, Kyrie. <laughs> exactly. And so, so let's just say that uh, a company wants a campus. Then we take them up to Plano and Frisco and hand them off to our friends up there. If they want to be in the tech corridor, we take them to Richardson. If they want to be near the airport, we take them to Irving. If they want to be downtown, we take them downtown and introduce them to the people in the city of Dallas. So, so that model, and by the way, we don't take a dime from the city of Dallas. We don't take a dime from the county. We, we only get our money from our member companies. So we're, we're really an honest broker. Uh, and so we want the best for those companies, and we want to make sure that there's a good fit for them. As a result of that model, in the last 12 years, 240 headquarters have moved from somewhere else to the Dallas region. Wow. 240, that's 20 a year. 
for 12 straight years and 1.3 million new jobs during that time. So over 100,000 new jobs created every single year for the past 12 years. Those are crazy numbers. There's no other place in America that's even close to those numbers. Dallas is the hottest market in America, the most prosperous market. For that to happen, we have to work really hard on three other things. One is public policy, the laws and the regulations that we have in this state. So what we want is a strong business climate, low taxes, reasonable regulations, and welcoming. We want our state to be a welcoming state and Dallas to be a welcoming community. The second thing we work on is the talent pipeline. We've got to have good workers for those companies. Mm -hmm. So we work really hard with the schools from pre-K right through grade 12, the community colleges, the four-year schools, and the graduate schools to make sure that every one of our kids has an opportunity for a great education so they can have a, a good life and a, a good job and a good life. And then the third thing we work on really hard, and this is really important, is diversity and inclusion. Because we have one of the most prosperous communities in America, and right alongside it, right next to it, is one of the poorest communities in America. And we will not reach our full potential until everyone in this community has the same opportunities for jobs, for education, and for the same health outcomes. So we work really hard. Uh, the center of the bullseye is that prosperity and economic development, but we work really hard in public policy, the talent workforce, and then diversity and inclusion to make it all happen. Fantastic. In fact, the work has been done so well. You guys have been named the National Chamber of the Year. Congratulations on that. And I can tell you're more than just goodwill ambassadors. It's obvious that you guys are facilitators. You're connectors. You you bring these, you, you let people know what they have and the opportunities that are here. But I also like the fact that you're letting the people who are here in the North Texas area realize the different corporations or the different job opportunities that may be coming to them. Yes. I mean, that's a big part of what we do. And I think it's something we do better than most any other chamber in the country. That's probably why we were named National Chamber of the Year, is that we are good connectors of the dot. We always have our antenna up, Chris, mm -hmm. for people wanting to help people uh, and, 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 and um, help people uh, do, do more business, better business. But it could be something else. I'm going to give you an example. Last night, I'm at an event, and it's a, it's a Latino event last night. Mm -hmm. And I start talking to this young woman who, uh, her name is Lucia, and she, um, she is in the events business. But then I talked to her a little bit more, and what she, she's really a swimmer. She was a champion swimmer in college, and she, um, she um, uh, teaches, she's the head swimming coach at Liberty Christian up in Frisco, and she she's grew up in Cuba, moved to Mexico City, and then to the United States. And what she found out is that the Hispanic community, uh, the drowning deaths in the Hispanic community are way higher than any other group. Is that and right? So, so she, and the reason is because they don't have pools, they're not mm -hmm. taught to swim at an early age. So a baby falls in a pool, the parents go in to get them, and you have two deaths instead of one. Mm -hmm. The parent dies too because they mm -hmm. can't swim trying to save the baby. She is devoting her time to teaching swimming and, and water safety to the Hispanic community. So I say to her, you need to meet Nancy Avila. Nancy Avila is the chief technology officer at McKesson, the seventh largest company in America. But Nancy told me her story. She grew up in Los Angeles, the poorest section of Los Angeles. And at 10 years old, somebody saw her swim and said, 
you you can be a champion swimmer. So they put her into a private school. She she became a college swimmer. She went to college on a, a swimming scholarship, and then she started her career, uh, you know, in, in pharmaceuticals and so forth, and to, leading up to being the, having the role she has now with McKesson. This morning, I connected Lucia with Nancy Avila, and they are thrilled to know each other. And Nancy is just so impressed with this young woman who is teaching swimming to, and saving lives to the Hispanic community. So, yes, we connect people, connect the dots and connect people for business purposes. But sometimes it goes beyond that just because we know so much about so many people. You know, what? I, I love this story. And let me tell you why, because it struck a personal nerve with me. My three kids, when they were like three and four years old, I taught them how to swim because I didn't want them to be victims of drowning. And, of course, I'm a really good swimmer myself. They have grown up to be the lifeguards over at Golf Club of Dallas and the Veranda Club over at the Anatole Hotel at the Jade Waters because I think it's important for kids to understand and know how to swim and also have the opportunity to do different things other than just, you know, regular pickup basketball games or, or baseball or football. And I love that message that you sent because there's layers to this thing. There's trickle down. And once you get to know somebody, you can actually affect even more lives. I love that story, Dale. Yeah. And that's, that's what we really encourage our staff to do is to get to know uh, the folks we work with as people. You know, I always say, Chris, you'll understand this. We're all just wearing a uniform today. My mm-hmm. uniform today says that I'm the, the CEO of the Dallas Regional Chamber. Uh, prior to this, you know, I was the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Prior to that, I was at National Geographic. Prior to that, I was in the White House. So, but that that's just the uniform I'm wearing. That's not who I am underneath this uniform. Mm-hmm. You got to get, you got to get to know who's that person really under that uniform. And I think that the, when we do that, we really have a chance to, uh, to to have deeper relationships and really doing more good for our communities. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought up your background because it kind of it perfectly transitions to where I want to go. I think the fact that you've worn those different hats makes you the perfect person to be the president and CEO of the Dallas Regional Chamber. Can you talk about first how you decided to be the president or receive the opportunity or, you know, I don't know if they asked you or you decided you wanted to go for it. But I think you're the perfect fit. I've run across you at so many different events, and you either know a whole lot of people or put it like this, you have a great personality where people want to know you. Well, you're so kind. I'm a little, you're a people all person. Of, all of that. I apologize. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, um, I had been at the Baseball Hall of Fame. I was uh, president of the Baseball Hall of Fame for nine years. And Nolan Ryan called me one day. The kids had all graduated and gone on to college. And Nolan called me, and he, he was the new president of the Texas Rangers at mm-hmm. that time. And he said, Dale, is that town getting a little small for you? And I said, uh, well, kind of. He said, why don't you come on down here and do this with me? He says, you can be my executive vice president of marketing. And so Ann and I left Cooperstown, came down to Dallas, and, and became uh, – I, I worked for the Rangers for a couple of years with Nolan. Mm-hmm. And then, of course – so I was out in the community a lot. People saw me in the community. Uh, I did a lot in the community. And so um, we had new ownership, and uh, they swept swept the house clean, and I was one of those that got swept out. And then not too long after that, Nolan left as well. So I went uh, to California. I got an offer to go to California and work in in uh, uh, public affairs for an energy company, Occidental Petroleum. 
uh, in Los Angeles for two years. Did not like it at all. I mean, you know, I was used to wearing the white hat uh, in the Reagan White House or at National Geographic, the baseball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. People love seeing me coming. And now I'm in California peddling oil in Los Angeles. That wasn't so much fun. So <laughs> anyway, Ambassador Oberwetter uh, at the time was the CEO of the Dallas Regional Chamber. He was getting set to retire. And I got a call out in Los Angeles saying, Dale, we've seen you in action in Dallas with the Rangers, and we we think you might be a pretty good chamber president. Would you be interested in interviewing for it? So Ann and I talked about it. We always loved Dallas. So I interviewed for it and came back, and, and here I am. I've been here uh, back here as the chamber CEO for the last nine and a half years now. It's been an amazing running. You're not going away. Any, you're not leaving us anytime soon, are you? Nope, nope, no plans to. <laughs> Fantastic. Again, I see you at so many different events and you have, like I said, this infectious personality. And I just want to kind of keep going with the sports a little bit because sports does have an impact on an area. And, it, you know, it, it kind of makes people proud of their area and it, it, it sometimes brings people together because it's from commonality. The Texas Rangers just won the World Series. I want to know where you were, how you felt about it. And you know how these things go. Way back in the day when the Dallas uh, Mavericks won the, the uh, NBA championship and further back the Stars and way further back the Dallas Cowboys, it has an economic impact and it also has a feel-good impact. And you talk about, like I said, where you were when the Rangers won the World Series, your thoughts, and as a chamber president, what are you thinking? Like, oh, my goodness, th- we got to be ready for this. Yes. Okay, great. Uh well, first of all, where I was, I, I, my mom is 92 years old, and she, she had nine kids. I'm one of nine kids. And she wanted to go on a cruise with her nine kids. It's the first cruise I'd ever been on. And um, so I was on the ship for the first two games of the World Series. And so uh, I saw Corey Seager's home run <laughs> in, the, uh, in the ninth inning to tie it, and then Garcia's home run to, to win it, game one, mm-hmm. uh, on a ship you know, out in the middle of uh, the Caribbean with no other Rangers fans around, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and then, then I got home for games, um, you know, starting with game three. And, um, and I actually got invited to game six by one of our great friends here, one of our great board members, Brendan McGuire of PNC Bank. And so I was, I was thinking, there's no way we're going to win this in five. It's going to go at least six, so I'll get to see a World Series game. And uh, and sure enough, we win all three in Arizona, and uh, and and you know I couldn't be happier. I look, I'd rather have them win Game Five than than lose, so I could go because Chris, you know, in a short series, it can go south in a hurry. That's right. I mean, Anything yeah, can happen. The ball starts rolling the wrong way. The momentum changes, and all of a sudden, the other team's got the momentum. So, where I was when they won it, I was sitting in my on my sofa with a fire in the fireplace. And I was just so thrilled because, like you, I know the grind that yeah. is the season. Yeah. And as if, if you think about this season, I watch every pitch every night if I can. And so early in the season, I'll give you one example. Early in the season, uh, our bullpen, the only reliable reliable pitcher in our bullpen was a guy named Will Smith. And he kind of he kind of saved games for us for the first three months of the season when nobody else could get anybody out in the bullpen. Fast forward to the end of the season, Will Smith is nowhere to be seen because he can't get anybody out. Right. But Jose LeClerc and uh, and Josh Spores, who have been in the minor leagues because they couldn't, they couldn't find it early in the season, 
they're the ones who are the heroes at the end. So this thing is a grind. It's a day-to-day thing. And uh, I think winning a baseball championship or a basketball championship is, is the most exciting because it's such a day-to-day grind for six months. And, uh, but what a thrill. And I, you know, the Rangers owners, Ray Davis and Neil Liebman, they called me and invited me to join them to go see um, uh, Mayor Johnson at City Hall with the city council members when they brought the trophy and shared it with them. And that was a great thrill, too, to, to be part of that. And then to actually get to hold the World Series trophy a few days after they'd won it. Just amazing. And as you know, everybody is still excited. I was, I was telling people, I said, you know, they have a great opportunity. But right now, you put a T on anything, and that's, that's gold. You can put a T on a turtle, and you can sell that thing for $100. Can you talk about, again, the impact societally and uh, economically with the Texas Rangers winning the World Series for this area? We're, by the way, yeah. we're talking with Dale Petrosky. He's the president and CEO of the Dallas Regional Chamber. Yeah, I was in. A, I was at the gas station uh, about a week after they had won, and some guy had set up a pitch tent in, in the parking lot of the um, gas station selling Rangers gear. <laughs> I'm like, wow, when have we ever seen this before? But but it's so it's so true. Everybody loves a winner, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and people jump on the bandwagon, and, and we'll take them because now they'll be fans for, for, for life, hopefully. Um, but they say that what between five hundred and seven hundred thousand people showed up for that parade. Yes, I was uh, there. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, what, everybody loves a winner. When the Mavs won in twenty eleven, mm-hmm. and when the Rangers, you know, won this year, the town just is electric, right? And, and you said it earlier, Chris, about how sports brings us together. Um, you know, you, you're sitting in the stands. You're sitting around people that you don't know. They may be from a different community, different backgrounds. You know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe even speak different languages. But when, you know, Corey Seager hits a home run, you turn around and you're high-fiving like your best buddy. Yeah. You know? and, and, and we, we all sort of come together. Or or you're in a, a Mavs game and Luca hits three three straight threes and, and all of a sudden, boom, everybody's high-fiving and just having the best time and cheering for our team. It's the one thing that brings us all together. And that's what sports does. And that's that's the fun of sports. And that's the, that's the good that sports does in our society. And you know what? You mentioned the Mavericks. Let's go ahead and talk about this a little bit. I had the opportunity to go with the Mavericks to emcee the, the games over, the global games over there in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, and you were along for the trip as well. And I know, I was like, Dale is here too. This is good for the Dallas Regional Chamber, and this is good for Dallas-Fort Worth and North Texas. Can you talk about some of the things that you learned on that trip or why this was kind of important for you guys to do some international things and not just national? Because Dallas-Fort Worth is an international area. Yes, well, it was it was such a wonderful honor to be asked to uh, to come because and Sint Sint Marshall is a great friend of mine. She mm-hmm. she's on our board, and in fact, she's just been named the chairman of uh, the DRC for next year, twenty twenty four. We we formalized that today in a board meeting. Excellent. And um, and I, she's asked me to serve as the co chair with her of. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks Advisory Council, which is sort of the community group mm-hmm. where we've got our ear to the ground, what's going on in the community that we can bring back to the Mavericks and we can tell the story of what the Mavericks, all the great things the Mavericks are doing in the community and in, in the basketball operations out to the community. So we're sort of the, the link with the community. It's really fun uh, to be part of that. I, I love it. Um, so we're good buddies, Sint and I. 
and she invited me to go along. And um, I was just so excited because it's, as you know, it's fun to travel with a team and it's not just the, the players on the team, but it's the front office and all the people that make this thing go of course. And the maps have such wonderful people oh mm-hmm. my goodness, from top to bottom. Uh, what a wonderful culture uh, Sid has built there. And, and uh, so when I went there, gosh, I learned a lot. It was my first trip ever to the Middle East. And so I, I saw in uh, Abu Dhabi how, how they really use Western brands to entice Westerners to come and visit. So, mm-hmm. for example, um, they have Warner Brothers, you know, which is out in Hollywood. There's a Warner Brothers in Abu Dhabi. Yep. Uh, the, the Louvre, you know, the great um, museum. In France, museum in, in Paris. In Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's the Louvre in Abu Dhabi. Um, you know, just a lot of things that uh, the, the, the Mayo Clinic, there's a Mayo Clinic in Abu Dhabi. And so it's interesting to see how they kind of use the Westerner, Western uh, brands to, to make it very uh, inviting and acceptable for folks to want to go there and, and vacation there. So I thought that was great. We stayed at the St. Regis, Chris, as you know, beautiful hotel. And mm-hmm. I've never seen service like that in my life. That was really quite amazing. The cultural differences were interesting. I mean, you were not to reach your hand out to shake somebody's hand unless they reached it out to you. And so I found this very endearing. The, the signal to someone when you pass them, maybe even in the hall, was just to tap your heart. You know, and, and that's a way of saying good morning. Like, mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. So I learned so much on the trip, as I say, my first trip to the Middle East, and um, I'll just forever be indebted to Sid for bringing me along. Dale, when uh, you guys are are showing the different, you know, different organizations or corporate groups, you know, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, do you ever take them to, like, Cowboy games, Maverick games, SMU games, TCU games, uh, Ranger games? In other words— and like the corporate suites kind of, you know, break the ice and, and show them a little bit what you got going on besides, you know, lay of the land. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the sports scene here is one of our greatest assets. And this, you know, because we have great fans, we have great teams. Look at the teams now. Rangers world champions. Mavs are nine and three. You know, mm-hmm. Cowboys are six and three. Stars mm-hmm. are in first place. They're 11 and three. I mean, we got it all going in the right direction. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, that um, we not we don't just do that for companies that are thinking about moving here. We use Mav Suites and Star Suites and Ranger Suites for our members, for the members of the DRC. It's our way of getting out, getting to know them on a more personal level, having fun together, and watching one of our great teams play. And so I think probably as a chamber, we do that more than just about any other chamber. We're a very relational chamber. We care about relationships and people way beyond just the just doing business with people the transactional side of things that's not that's not who we are uh and i think that's one of the reasons we've been so successful and again you've been a great big part of this uh you mentioned you were the executive director of the uh, baseball hall of fame while you were there i understand that you helped get some of the negro league players executive coaches to be inducted into that hall. Can you talk about that process? Because that's part of the diversity inclusion and, and that whole program right there. Cause I think that's so big and a lot of people lauded you for that. Yeah. When, thank you for bringing this up. It's one of, one of my proudest moments. Uh, when I got there, 
and I started to understand the Hall of Fame a little bit and what was going on and, and I learned more about the Negro Leagues. There were 17, no, there were 18 players in the, in the, um, in the Baseball Hall of Fame from the Negro Leagues. And the first one that went in was Satchel Paige in the 70s. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yet, I, the more I learned about the Negro Leagues, the more I realized there were a lot more great players than 18 players. And uh, so I said, well, can we do a study and just kind of try to match up the statistics of the Negro Leagues with the major leagues so that it could be an apples to apples comparison. And I got a lot of pushback saying, no, we can't do that because, you know, they played they played a couple league games, but they had to they had to survive. So they played some exhibition games along the way to make some money. Those weren't league games. So they really didn't count all the, all this kind of stuff. And by the way, the newspapers didn't keep box scores. Uh, our published box scores of those games. So we really don't have the numbers. Well, I talked to my staff and we figured out a way where we could go out and get those numbers. And it was a big, big effort uh, to, to uh, and we got 95% of the stats that we needed to make the decision. And then we put together a great uh, committee. It's interesting, there are people who are experts in Puerto Rican Negro Leagues baseball and the Eastern League, which is in the Eastern United States mm -hmm. and, the, and the central part of the country had its own teams. And that, that was a different kind of Negro Leagues. And so um, we put them all together on a committee and we looked at all those numbers and all those players. And they I think the first pass, there were 95 players that made the list. And then they got it down to, I think, 54. And then in the end, there were 17 players that they all agreed upon should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And in, in at the 2006 induction ceremony in Cooperstown, we put 17 more Negro Leaguers in at one time. And that was really one of the proudest days of my life. Fantastic. Again, you've got stories to tell. Again, you, you, you mentioned you were part of the Reagan's administration, the National Geographic Society, and now nine years into the Dallas Regional Chamber. Here with the Dallas Regional Chamber, I hate to pin you down, but was there a moment over the last nine years that you said, oh, this is what it's all about or one of the proudest things you've been a part of? I hate to throw that on you, but you're my guy. Yeah, there are so many. Every day is a proud moment here, to be honest with you, Chris, because yeah. I'm just so proud of our team and what we do here and what we get to do in this community. But, you know, it's always a thrill when a big company uh, decides to come to Dallas and we had a hand in it. So mm -hmm. in the last six years. I guess in the last seven years now, there have been seven Fortune 500s that have moved here, the latest being Frontier Communications, you know, um, and so that's a big deal. Or when Toyota moves here or Charles Schwab moves here mm -hmm. uh, or Caterpillar or CBRE, those are big, big deals for us. But I'll tell you one of the proudest moments for me, to be honest with you, was during COVID. And, uh, you know, I woke up one morning and I was thinking to myself, what could the chamber uniquely do to help this situation? And I came in and talked to the team. And um, together we figured out that probably the best thing we could do to help businesses and uh, people was um, work in the, uh, in the communities of color who, because those folks were, they were getting sick at higher rates, they were dying at higher rates, they were losing their jobs at higher rates, they were losing their businesses at higher rates than the rest of society. So we came up with a plan to get the word out to the communities of color here about that vaccines were available and vaccines could save your life. And so then uh, we worked with the churches in Southern Dallas County and talked to the ministers about if we could get the vaccines 
to right near your church, right after your services, where people where you could talk about it. If you want to protect you, you and your family and your and your jobs and your businesses, uh, one way to do that is if you want to go right down the street and get a vaccine, they're available today. And so we made that link. We we put the two of those things together: the communications part of it and the logistical part of getting vaccines to where the people were. And we we got six hundred thousand people signed up or vaccinated, I should say, between June and September of 2021. And that's really one of the proudest uh, days of my life because it shows what a chamber can do beyond what a usual chamber does. Exactly. You guys affected lives and saved lives at the same time. Uh, going through that pandemic was something special, something unique. And a lot of people you know, will never forget where they were during those times. Hey, Dale, before we get you out of here, is there something you want to mention where the chambers have coming up, the Dallas Regional Chamber has coming up this holiday season? Well, I'll tell you something we just did. We, we did a campaign called Good for Texans, mm-hmm. uh, and that was there were 14 ballot propositions on last week's ballot. There were no elected officials being voted on last week, but there were 14 propositions. We identified eight that we thought were the most important ones uh, in terms of economic growth, infrastructure, uh, just generally quality of life. And uh, we put we put some money aside uh, uh, for it. Um, and we, 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 we had a whole social media campaign. We had folks at the polls, uh, when people showed up to vote, we had cards that these are the eight we care about. We handed those out as people went in to vote. And in the end, all eight of them passed. And, um, and I think the lowest vote we got on any of them was nearly 60%. So very proud of that. And again, it shows that we're a different kind of chamber, um, so, so those are the, those are the kind of things we've got an annual meeting coming up. You'll appreciate this, Chris. Admiral McRaven is our speaker on January seventeenth wow. at Fair Park, and you probably know who that is. He, mm-hmm. He's the he's the um, uh, four star Navy admiral that was put in charge of finding and and killing Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. and uh, he was obviously successful at that. Then he later became the chancellor at the University of Texas at Austin. And he's a best-selling author. He's had three books on the New York Times bestseller list. The latest being, it's on there right now, it's called The Wisdom of the Bullfrog. So interesting, interesting guy. And uh, we'll have thousands, more than a thousand people out there watching Admiral McRaven speak on on January 17th. And that's a way for us to kick off our new year uh, with Sint as the the chair and and to launch our new three-year strategic plan, too. Dale, it's been a pleasure having you on. Dale Petroski, he's the CEO and president of the Dallas Regional Chamber. We want to thank all of you for joining us on Better Living, a show about people or organizations having a big impact here in North Texas. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. So long, everybody. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The Step Back 3. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.